Deuteronomy in the chapter 7, reading together from the verse 1. The Word of God says, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites, the Amorites and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. When the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars, and break down their images, and cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repayeth them that hate him to their face, To destroy them, he will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Amen. Ending our reading there at the verse 11 of the chapter. As we announced on Sunday past, we commence a series this this evening simply entitled, Our Covenant-Keeping God. And as we do so, we are looking to uh, learn much from Scripture about the covenants of the Bible. And simply tonight, we want to lay the introduction to this series, and we begin our studies together here in the Word of the Lord with a subject matter that I suggest to you is rarely preached upon, nor indeed privately studied in our generation. And this is, I believe, because of a misconception regarding the difficulty and indeed the depth of this subject matter. For some, it may be because the Bible covenants are of little significance when they read through the Scriptures. For others, it's because they simply serve, they believe the covenants simply serve to confuse or cast doubt upon a particular theological framework that they support or indeed implement in their reading of Scripture and their study of Bible themes. But tonight I suggest to you that a right and proper understanding of this particular subject matter, the covenants of the Bible, it will enhance our grasp of Scripture. It will enrich our personal devotional life. And ultimately it will serve to excite us as we behold God's plan for the ages, which is ever drawing closer to its climax. And so I commend this study to you, and I pray that the Lord will bless it to each of our hearts. And in short, I would say this to you, it's not a boring or a stuffy subject. And if this study turns out to be boring or stuffy, then you have my permission to fire me. Because as one of my Bible college professors said one time in our hermeneutics class, he says, remember this whenever you stand before the people of God, and seek to minister to them that you can do all things through Christ. And then he paused and he says, well, all things apart from make the Bible boring. And as we come to consider the Word of God tonight, we must remember that the Bible that we hold in our hands, it's a book that is rich and full. It's a living and a vibrant Word. And it's a Word which, when rightly taught and applied, leads to a lively, vibrant Christian life and enables each one of us to overcome in the struggles 
and the toils of time. The book we hold in our hands, the Scriptures, it's full of Bible doctrine. And doctrine is defined for us as our beliefs and teachings. And notice when we use the word doctrine, we use it in singular form. For the Bible reveals to us not many doctrines, but one body of belief and teachings. And therefore, as we come to consider Bible themes, as we come to consider Bible teachings, Bible truths, we must not and we cannot sever part of it away. Now, automatically, you may be asking, well, what about the doctrine of salvation, soteriology? What about the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology? What about the doctrine of sin, homardiology, and all those other ologies that people like to throw around? Surely they are standalone doctrines. Well, the truth is that as we come to consider these subject matters, they are but teachings of Scripture, teachings that we profess and proclaim And therefore, they make up individual areas of study which together come and make up the whole, one whole body of doctrine found in the Word of God. None of the subjects of Scripture contradict each other. None of the subjects, uh, indeed, complicate each other. Rather, they serve to complement one another and ultimately complete the one body of doctrine given to us in the Word of God. This Bible is that which reveals to us that which we must believe, that which we must teach. And remember, in the Word of God, we possess that which is inspired. It's God breathed. Revealed to us in the words of Scripture that holy men spake as they were moved of God. The Word of God is infallible, that is, that it's trustworthy, it's sure, it's inerrant, it's free from error. And therefore, as we come to it this evening, we also remember that this Word that we hold in our hands and we hold dear to our hearts is that which has been preserved by God down through the ages. And so we can be absolutely sure that as we study the Word of God, whether together as a company of God's people here, or whether in our own private lives during our times of devotion, then the Holy Spirit of God is the one who enlightens us. He illuminates that word that we read, that we seek to study, and He helps us more and more to understand that which is contained therein. And as we get that better grasp of Bible teaching we can be confident then that the doctrine we come to knowledge of is pure doctrine, authoritative doctrine, sound doctrine, complete doctrine. You might ask, well, why is doctrine, why is the study of God's Word essential to your lives? Well, one of the reasons that studying the Word of God and coming to a greater knowledge of the body of doctrine contained therein why it's essential to your life, why it's essential to mine, is simply this. The truth is that which we are able to pass on. Now, as we seek to counsel those that God has given us influence over, whether it be a younger generation, whether it be a new believer, you and I can share testimonies of our experiences. We can rehearse days and times of God's blessing We can even suggest the remedies to life's disappointments. And all of these things play a part in equipping an up-and-coming generation. But kindly, I suggest that that part is a small one. For generational differences mean that stories from days gone by don't carry the same weight with the millennial generation, nor indeed the generation of the tech revolution. But what does matter And what does transcend the generations and what is relevant no matter the period that it is preached in, no matter the period it's taught, no matter the period that it's proclaimed in, is the truth. And to pass on the truth, then we must always be students of the truth. We must always live the truth. We must always proclaim the truth. But more importantly, perhaps, than even that 
suggestion that it is the truth that we pass on, is the understanding that Bible truth is essential to every area of our lives. Because beliefs determine behavior. And so, as I come to proclaim the Word of God, this is truly the one that matters to me. Because I want to be someone who is able rightly to divide the Word of truth and to impart that truth unto others. And whether young or old here tonight, it is my aim to study the truth together with you, to teach the truth, to preach the truth, so that we together in this place might know how to behave ourselves as members of the church, which the Word of God describes as being the pillar and ground of the truth. May that always be true of this assembly. But we come to consider this subject of the covenants of the Bible, and we come to once more delve into the Word of God and seek to gain a better grasp, a better understanding of the truths and teachings that are found therein why do we come to this subject matter? Well, I believe that the covenants of Scripture, they impart to us what is an incalculable and invaluable treasure trove of theology. And theology is that which we believe to be true about God. So, as we come together around this study of what the Bible teaches about the covenants of Scripture, I believe that each of us will grow in our understanding of who God is, of what God is like, and of what His plans are for you and for me, even in this generation in which we live. God is indescribable. God is incomprehensible. But yet the Word of God also reminds us that God is knowable. John's Gospel in the chapter 17, the Lord lifted up his eyes unto heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. In Romans, in the chapter 11, in the verse 33, Paul writes under the church at Rome, and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. And in both of these passages, we come to this understanding. God is indescribable. God is incomprehensible. But yet through it all, God desires to be known. And it is our opportunity to know God and to know more about Him. And so, yes, He's revealed in creation. And yes, He has revealed Himself in our conscience. But it is this written revelation of Himself that is of the utmost importance, the primary importance when it comes to the source that we must continually go back to if we are to grow in our understanding of the God whom we adore, the God whom we serve, the God who desires to be known of us. And so we come to this theme of the covenants of the Bible, and in them we see that God reveals Himself in a special way. There is contained in the words of the Scriptures that record these covenants of the Bible, words which reveal to us more about our Heavenly Father. We see that He reveals Himself in a special way, but we also see that He reveals His special plan for the ages. And in every step, we also see that progressive revelation of His own dear Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight, as we come to commence this study, I want us to simply consider two points. And the first of these is the understanding of the word covenant. The understanding of the word covenant. Now, our reading in Deuteronomy in the chapter 7 alerts us to the importance of this word in the eyes of God. 
If you enter into verse 2, it says, When the Lord thy God shall deliver thee before them, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them. Who's God referring to here? Well, back up into verse 1, and you see there that He's referring to the nations who will be before the children of Israel, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than they. But what we also know to be true about each of these nations were, that, or what is simply that they were heathen nations. They did not believe nor profess any belief or adherence or worship to the one true and living God. And so God says unto His people, the nation of Israel, He says, as you come into their land, as they are before you, you shall make no covenant with the heathen. But come down into verse 9 of the reading that we took there in the chapter 7 and see the words that are recorded there. And it says, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God which keepeth covenant. Once more, the exact same word that's used. But this time, instead of forbidding a covenant to be made, God is highlighting and indeed spotlighting to the children of Israel the fact that a covenant has already been made between him and them. So immediately we're alerted to the fact that God places a high priority on this word and indeed on the correct application of this word. Now the word covenant in the Hebrew is berif. And it's found 280 times in the Old Testament. 260 times it's translated exactly as we find it tonight in our passage, the word covenant. If you come into the New Testament then, in the Greek, it's the word diatheke, which is found 33 times in New Testament Scriptures. And over 20 of those occasions, it's translated covenant. Now, many definitions for this term have been offered up. But seeking to keep it simple and indeed memorable, I have boiled it down to this simple statement that I offer to you this evening. A covenant is a promise or agreement within a legal framework. It's a promise or an agreement within a legal framework. And I arrive at this de definition using the following proof. For in the Old Testament, its usage is focused on that transacted between God and man. The overwhelming number of occasions being whenever God makes an agreement with man. Over and over again in Old Testament Scripture, you will read this phrase when it comes to the matter of covenants, the Lord made. And exploring this phrase, as we will come to do so in the weeks to come, it suggests the use of a ceremony, and that's something that we'll look at, even as the Lord allows in uh, uh, future studies. But the central focus of the phrase the Lord made was not upon the ceremony which may or may not have happened at the time of the covenant making, but rather the focus is very much upon the one who initiates the covenant the one who takes upon him the burden of fulfilling the covenant. That's none other than God himself. The evidence I use from the New Testament is this, the identification of the legal overtones. Each and every time we find the usage of the word diatheke in New Testament Scripture, it's associated with the dispersal of something within a legal framework. Very often it's used in connection with the dispersal of property, primarily via a legal document. And so as we consider that and its, its usage, its primary usage there in the New Testament, we come to the understanding that it all speaks very much about the bestowal to another of that which they in no way had claimed to, that they in, which in no way belonged unto them, but rather because of the benevolent nature of the benefactor they were graciously receiving. And so the New Testament usage of the word is very interesting. For rarely does the New Testament usage suggest obligation on a joint scale. 
but rather it repeats the same refrain almost every time. God does, and God will. We see that very clearly in the book of Galatians. Galatians in the chapter 3, and Paul is writing about this subject matter indeed. But in Galatians chapter 3, in the verse 15, he says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Nor to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ the law which was 430 years after cannot disannul that it should not, or should make, sorry, the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And in this passage of Scripture, Paul is reminding the Galatian believers that the law didn't add requirements to the Abrahamic covenant. Rather, it was true in relation to this covenant and remains true to this very day, simply the statement, God will. And so, once more, it's connected with this truth that there was one who was willing to bestow upon a people that which they had no right nor claim to, but rather according to the mercy and grace of the one who was the benefactor was willing to grant that which he promised to do. And so we see that from both Old Testament Scriptures and New Testament Scriptures that we're speaking of something much stronger than a verbal promise. We're speaking of something much stronger indeed than a passing statement of intention. We're speaking of something in which God declares, I will perform that which I covenant to do. And so the promise that he makes, the agreement that he enters into with men or with mankind, as we'll come to them time and time again in the Word of God, teach this. God is binding himself to fulfill that which he declares. And so we can see quite clearly that the employment of the word covenant by God in Scripture was always revealed to, uh, to was always intended to reveal his plans. It was always intended to reveal his desires, but it was also to reaffirm his guarantee. It always foretold of a work that would be done in the lives and the circumstances of those with whom the covenant was being made. But it also provided the insurance policy that it would be done. And so, as we behold the covenants of the Bible, we behold God's plan unfolded before our eyes. We see that step by step, working through of His program for the ages. And each and every time we see this binding commitment, this legal contract that He's entering into, so that what He promises to do shall be surely done. Now, come back to the book of Deuteronomy and read with me in the verses 6 through 8 and see how God enters even into uh, this covenant with the children of Israel here. He says in the verse 6, Thou art an holy people. Unto the Lord thy God, the Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because He would keep the oath which He had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." Now continue down into verse 11 and read there where it says, Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and statutes and judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Wherefore it shall come to pass, if ye hearken to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he sware unto thy fathers. And he will love thee and bless thee 
and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb, the fruit of thy land, thy corn, thy wine, and thine oil, the increase of thy kin, and the flocks of thy sheep, in the land which he sware unto thy fathers to give thee. Thou shalt be blessed above all people. There shall not be male nor female barn among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knowest upon thee, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. And thou shalt consume all the people which the Lord thy God shall deliver thee. So you see in these verses revealed to Israel God's plan for them. And the plan that he speaks of, behold, the blessings that are in it. Behold, the multiplication that's promised. Behold, the children, the crops, the herds, the many possessions, the good health, the divine protection. This is what God committed to his people to fulfill in their lives. This is what he entered into a covenant with them to perform, to bring to pass in their life's experience. You might be here tonight and you might be wondering in your own mind, in your own heart, well, how could all of this have happened? These are great promises. These are indeed uh, large and uh, forceful claims that are being made and great guarantees that are being given. How, how could all of this come to pass? Looking back in history, we understand that the nation of Israel contains such a company of people who thought exactly the same. God knows our frame and God knows how our minds work and He understands even that which our human reasoning can't fully comprehend now come to terms with. And so just in case there were those amongst the people of Israel who wondered and who pondered, could God really do this? See the insurance policy that He gives. For in verse 9, he says, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God. The faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repayeth them that hate him to their face to destroy them, he will not be slack to them that hateth him, he will repay him to his face. Down in verse 17, If I shall say in thine heart, These nations are more than I, how can I dispossess them? Thou shalt not be afraid of them, but shalt well remember what the Lord thy God did unto Pharaoh and unto all Egypt. The great temptations which thine eyes saw and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the stretched out arm whereby the Lord thy God brought thee out, so shall the Lord thy God do unto all the people of whom thou art afraid. Moreover, the Lord thy God will send the hornet among them until they that are left and hide themselves from thee be destroyed. Thou shalt not be affrighted at them, for the Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. And here's the insurance policy that is given with this contract. Here indeed is that which legally binds him to fulfill. He says, I am God, the faithful God. And children of Israel, as your journeys will take you through the wilderness, and as now they will bring you into the promised land, and now you stand in the cusp of realizing the fulfillment of all that I have promised to your forefathers. Know this, I am God, and I am among you. And that which you consider to be impossible, that which you question, can it really be done? Be done? I give you my guarantee. I give you my promise. I give you my covenant that I will perform all that I have promised to do. What a God we serve. And so you see these covenants, these agreements made within a legal framework. They were employed by God to reveal His plans and His purposes, but also to reaffirm His guarantees. Well, that's the more academic part of tonight's proceedings over with. We come now to the application. Preaching without application is a misuse of time and effort. And so we must bring this down to our level and 
our day, our generation. And the application as we come to it tonight means that we will zoom in on that guarantee of God. Because we want to behold the guarantor. And so, secondly, this evening, we see not only the understanding of the word covenant, but the underwriter of the word covenant. Who underwrites, who guarantees the covenants of the Bible that we come to consider in this study? Well, we've already affirmed that it's God Himself. And as Scripture reveals God to us, we see that He is Almighty. We see that He is unfeeling. We see that He is faithful. Now, God's use of the word covenant in Scripture, I believe, offer full assurance, perfect confidence, and unchanging divine commitment to do all that He has covenanted to do. And I say this with a firm belief and with authority simply because of the name of the one who covenants with man. And that name is Jehovah. Jewish commentators tell us that in the name Jehovah is found the expression of the distinct nature of God. Simply it is the name reserved for and attributed to the true God alone. It was a name highly revered It was a name greatly respected by Hebrew scholars and translators. And as we read through Scripture, and as we come across commentaries, we will often see references to the God of Israel. Now, in that statement, our title is an an acknowledgement of the exclusivity of God, something that we remarked upon even last Sunday morning the fact that He is the only true God. But there's also the reality that there was baseless claims that other gods existed. It is, if you will, an acknowledgement of the spiritual adultery and of the pagan idolatry that God's people entered into. To think that in the Word of God there had to be clarification of the one who was being referred to. But yet, nevertheless, as sinful as that was the heart of man, sinful as that was indeed the deeds and the acts of the children of Israel, that there was that need to quantify what was meant when they used the term God or in the Hebrew Elohim. But what you will never see in the Word of God and what you will never find in any commentary is simply this, the Jehovah of Israel or the Yahweh of Israel. And the reason for that is simple. Because in the name Jehovah is communicated evidence of the divine alone. The name Jehovah crystallizes the essence of who He truly is. It gives definite form to the reality that He exists, and it testifies of the one who has been, who is, and who always will be. The word Jehovah is first given to us in Genesis in the chapter 2. We know from Genesis in the chapter 1 that we have recorded for us the creative works of God. But the term God that's used in Genesis chapter 1 is exclusively Elohim, the all-powerful triune God. But in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, the Bible records these words, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Here in that usage of the word Lord God, we are introduced to Jehovah God. And notice as chapter 2 continues that this term, this phrase, is this name of God is used over and over again. For as Scripture goes on in verse 5, it says, And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, And there was not a man to till the ground. 
But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And repeatedly, as we're introduced to what God created specifically for man, what God provided specifically for man, the name Jehovah God is used over and over again. And in this occurrence, in this introduction to this name, we see a God who is involved in and interested in the very affairs of man. And here in chapter 2, we see the beginnings of God's special, His personal, His covenantal relationship with man. But then come across to Exodus in chapter 3. Exodus in chapter 3, and we come to a time period in which a nation of people now exist. A nation within whom God is working out His covenantal purposes and plans. But a nation who are in bondage. A nation who are crying and sighing under a heavy load. But a nation that God hasn't forgot about. And the exact moment of their crying and sighing, God is raising up and calling out a man who would be his human instrument of redemption. Read in chapter 3 in the verses 1 through 14, it tells us, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground." Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrow. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land unto a good land, unto a large Onto a land flowing with milk and honey, onto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. So here we see that Moses is given a mission. He's given a mission to go before the children of Israel, and he's given a mission to go and declare unto them that I am Jehovah had sent him. And Jehovah had sent him because he was a God who kept his promise. He was a God who kept the covenant with his people. And so the headline becomes, not only I am the God who is, 
but I am the God who can. But see how it progresses, for this story isn't done. And uh, just three chapters over, in Exodus chapter 6, in the verses 1 through 8, we see once more that he has further revelation to give about this great and all-powerful name. He says unto him in verse 1, Now shalt I see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. I have established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have heard also the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rid you out of their bondage. I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into a land concerning the which I did swear, I did covenant to give it to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it you for an heritage. I am Jehovah. And see here how he's relating to the people. See here how he's revealing to the people that he is a God who not only can, but he's a God who will. And so he's progressed from his, the revelation at the beginning of time, the all-powerful God, the I am, the one who exists, to the God who can, the one who is able to deliver them, the one who is able to give them a, a land, the one who is able to fulfill his promise. And now he comes and he says through his servant Moses, not only I am, not only I can, but I will. I am the God who is going to perform all that I have promised to do, all that I have committed to do. And friend, tonight as we gather around the word of the Lord, understand this, this God is our God, even unto death. You may be here tonight and you're experiencing a great trial. You may be here tonight and you're going through a season of great discouragement. Your days may be filled with clouds and darkness. And tonight you're here and you're sighing and you're crying within. But remember, as we looked at on Sunday, He knows your name. And He knows all about you. And his message to you through his word tonight as we come to consider the covenants of the Bible is I not only am, but I can and I will. Isaiah in the chapter 63, the prophet records, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us in the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he said, surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their savior in all their affliction. He was afflicted. You're kind of burden here tonight. You're downcast in your spirit. You're sorrowful in your heart. Know that in all your sorrow, he is sorrowful. Know that in all your buffeting, he is buffeted. And the angel of his presence, the word of God, records, saved them in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He bare them and carried them all the days of old. The psalmist says in Psalm 91 in the verse 2, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. I will say of Jehovah, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God. And him will I trust. Friend, tonight, your God, my God, he's a covenant-keeping God who not only is, who not only can, but he's a God who will deliver you. He will strengthen you. He will never leave you. He will walk beside you and he will carry you through. Jehovah is his name. And so God's use of covenants offer to us full assurance. They offer to us perfect confidence. They offer to us unchanging divine commitment to all that he has promised to do. But we must remark upon this truth. 
because they also testify to the fickleness and to the deceitfulness of our human nature. To think that God ever had to enter into a contract with man. Turn back to Genesis in the chapter 3. Genesis chapter 1, Elohim creates all things by the word of his power. Genesis chapter 2, revealed to us as this special relationship between the covenant-keeping God and man. Genesis chapter 3, the sinfulness, deceitfulness, and fickleness of our human heart. As we enter into chapter 3, we see how easily all of these promises how even that special plan that God had for man was so easily set aside. Almost forgotten. We also see how the devil sought to ride a horse and carriage through the relationship and the plan that God had for man. And the evidence of all of this is found in the name. Reading verse 1, it says, The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Jehovah God had made. But yet he comes unto the woman and he saith, Yea, hath God, El, Elohim. Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Immediately seeks to separate the covenantal special relationship that existed between God and man. He downgraded that relationship, that special plan. But sadly, it was something that Eve allowed to continue. For in verse 2, the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God, God, hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And so having won in the effort and the attempt to downgrade that special relationship, to override that special plan, Eve takes of the forbidden fruit. She offered it to Adam, her husband, and that which she offers, and he accepts, makes him complicit in downgrading God. In rejecting God's covenantal purpose and plan. As we behold that which occurs in the opening six verses of this chapter, we say Satan won. He succeeded in separating belief of God from the belief in the Jehovah God. And that's exactly what he still desires to do in your life and in mine. He seeks to devalue our relationship with God, to diminish our trust and our faith in God, and to disrupt us from entering in to the good of his promises and plans. Eve manifested unbelief that God could or would. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're here tonight and you say, I know that God has promised to do this. I know that God has covenanted to do that. But you know, when it comes to it, I just don't know that He can. Make no mistake about it, unbelief dishonors God. It grieves God. It is a root of disobedience and sin. But praise God, it never derails God. For come to verse 8 of this account, and it tells us, they heard the voice of Jehovah God. Despite the fact that they devalued their relationship, despite the fact that unbelief was existent and found in their hearts, disobedience was found in their practice, and sin had now entered the world, God was ever faithful. Despite their shortcomings, He remained committed. Despite their sin, he remained just. 
Friend, tonight as we come to consider this name Jehovah, faithfulness is the attribute that's most closely associated with the name. It was his faithfulness that meant that Noah pressed on and built an ark to the saving of eight souls. It was faithfulness that made Abraham leave Ur of the Chaldees and search for a city whose builder and maker was God. It was faithfulness that meant Moses pressed on and pressed through even when there seemed to be no way out. Even when beset with the pressures of leading a great company of people. Even when distrusted by bitter and complaining people. And all seemed against him. It was God's faithfulness that allowed him to press on and press through. It was God's faithfulness that gave David the heart and wisdom to lead Israel to a period of supremacy and relative peace. Friend, tonight it's his faithfulness that means you can be confident that he will fulfill that which he has promised to do. Even when your whole world seems as if it's turned upside down. Even when it seems that there's no hope. Even when it seems that that loved one that you've prayed for for so many years, they seem to be further away than ever. His faithfulness means he will perform that which he has promised to do. Because Jehovah God is his name. A name of authority, a name of supremacy, a name of eternal deity, a name of self-existence, the infinite one, the omnipotent one, the omnipresent one, the omniscient one, the ever-faithful one, the self-sufficient one, the righteous one, the thrice holy one, the one of everlasting love, the one who is, the one who will, and the one who can. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our covenant-keeping God. May God bless these things to us.